Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. We are, uh, in our study of biblical masculinity, if someone wouldn't mind, um, actually, let's see if I can pull it up here. My phone died, so I'm adjusting to certain things here. I think I'll be able to pull it up here, but thank you, Seth. We'll go to Ephesians chapter 6 for our reading. Thank you, uh, Mr. Neal. This is Mrs. Herbert. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, you guys can just listen if you're uh, enjoying your breakfast, turn there, whatever. Later, we'll update that. This iPad is 11 years old, so there's certain things that work on it and certain things that don't. Apple gets it like they won't. It won't update certain software anymore, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. This is Paul's section. It would be the closest thing today on work. Employees, employers. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Father in heaven, this morning as we set out on a new day, we would be amiss if we didn't just take a moment and, as it were, throw anchor of our soul, heart, and body into your grace and into the strength of your might. Father, we thank you that you are on the throne you are reigning, you are overseeing stars and galaxies and the ocean and the sky and the weather while we were uh, unconscious and just out and exercising our frail creatureliness in sleep. Thank you for the sleep that you did give us, whether a lot or a little or in between. And Father, as we look now at masculinity, we know that the devil is really cleverly very intentionally and just wickedly going after your good design for men and women. And I pray that we would be grounded in your word, that we would be strong in the faith, we would be on the alert, act like men, that everything we do would be done in love, and we would be strong in the strength of your might, Father. May all that is said and done this morning here in our brief time, be honoring to you and helpful to strengthen us for the battle ahead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You good in there? That's a little earthquake or something. All right, brothers, we are in uh, our study of biblical masculinity. Grab the notes, please, if you haven't already. Um, and I think Pastor Matt sent out a uh, uh, a spreadsheet or some sort of record of the verses that we've been having the privilege to memorize, is that true? So what have we had? We've had uh, Galatians 2.20. Phil, what do you got? Galatians 2.20. Nice. You got it, good. 
Amen. And then we have uh, Psalm 128, I think, verse 1. Danny? Yeah. Nice. And then I think we have 1 Corinthians 16 and 14. Anybody awake enough to want to give that one a shot? It's kind of that four staccato. Be on the alert. Let all that you do. Nice. And then I think we had Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Did we do that? Anybody remember that one? Something about spurring one another on loving good deeds. They did. Yeah, but all the more as the day a day draws near, and I was nearer than it was then. Uh, and then I think we did. What other ones did we do? Did we do Second Timothy two two? The things you have heard from me. And trust these faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Good stuff. Hiding the word in our heart, being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then for today and uh, last week, we were working on 1 Corinthians 13, 47. That verse we uh, considered for the last two Sundays. Love is, depending on what version you're hiding in your heart, love is patient, love is kind, is not. Envious, jealous, crack is not arrogant or puffed up, is not rude or acting, does not. Expressing is actually first Corinthians 14, 3 through 7. Oh, it was. Yeah. Oh. No, 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 no. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that was probably my mistake. No, you don't need to be prizing that one yet. I wouldn't say ever. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm surprised someone out about that and said, "Hey, what are you doing?" It's like memorizing. It's like memorizing some of the uh, genealogies at the end of Nehemiah or something. The dudes who got their hair ripped out and married the Moabites. <laughs> Why are we memorizing that? All scripture is profitable. Don't say I didn't say that. All right. Well, here we are, gentlemen. Um, we considered masculinity and marriage for uh, a number of weeks. And uh, as we move on for that, I, I just want us to, you know, we looked at some difficult things, the way that the curse uniquely uh, damages uh, the guys and the gals in marriage. Uh, so that we can know how to better uh, approach our marriages with tenderness, but also with courage, uh, with the boldness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ that is necessary. And as we move on, I, I just want to conclude that with uh, remembering Proverbs 18.22. Proverbs 18.22, which says, He you got to know this one, gentlemen, if you have a wife, because you're telling this to your wife often. Wife finds a good thing. Finds a good thing. Favor from the Lord. And so marriage is a blessing. It's called the grace of life in First Peter 3. And it sure is the grace of life. 
uh, among some of the damages we looked at. Nevertheless, God is gracious, and it is a blessing. Now, uh, I've neglected to talk about some of our, uh, our coming-of-age masculine traditions, so I want to get back to that just for the fun of it, recognizing that even in the natural light of men throughout history, everybody's recognized that there are only two genders, and they are to be honored, respected, up their particular roles for each. And this morning's, uh, I want to look at uh, coming-of-age tradition and the Aboriginal people, uh, the Aborigines from Australia. They have some interesting ones. If you're a historian or an Aboriginologist, uh, and I get something wrong here, please correct me. Um, but this would take place. They, they, had a, they had a number of things they would do. When a boy turned 12, they would have the tossing ceremony. Anyone, everyone heard of this? The tossing ceremony, where everyone in the village would get together at the center, and they'd take that boy and, I don't know, blanket or straw, trampoline, which they just throw him up and down as high as they could uh, for a long time. Uh, how that looks, probably the same. You'd bum rush a guy or beat him up or throw him off something. Some of the other interesting rites that we've looked at. Uh, they would also, many tribes would practice as a young teenager, circumcision. Not as a baby, but as a young teenager. That would be a memorable experience. That would certainly mark the boy, uh, both uh, emotionally and maybe otherwise. Um, but, and then what they would do in some of these communities, the newly circumcised youth, this is quote, would be required to smear their blood on the backs of other males from their tribe, end quote. Uh, the youths would be required also to uh, carry burning branches and endure the pain of embers falling down onto their bare bodies. Uh, this, you know, this would prove that you're a man, I guess. And after that, they would be required to lie down on the top of hot embers and sizzling coals for several minutes. And this would conclude, in Aboriginal culture, the knockout ceremony. Have you heard of the knockout ceremony? Not, not decking them and knocking them out cold, but they would take a stick and, and they'd, you know, you'd pick a tooth and they would just knock that tooth until it went flying. And as the mother saw that to fly, it was a symbol to the mother that the youth had knocked out of that boy was proceeding into manhood. So it was. Uh, maybe not uh, something to imitate, but nevertheless, these people across the globe have recognized what Genesis 127 tells us. There are two genders, male and female. He created them. So... Um, and moving on, we're now considering the topic that uh, some of you have requested, I think is important to look at, and that's masculinity and work. Masculinity and work. A couple of uh, quotes, maybe some of them with a little cheese factor, but nevertheless, pulling from the common grace of the natural light that God has given in men. Alexander Graham Bell probably had some decent work ethic said, quote, concentrate, these aren't in your notes, just for fun here, concentrate all your thoughts upon the work in hand. The sun's rays do not burn until brought to a focus. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I'm a great believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. Uh, another individual said, quote, success is the sum of small efforts repeated day in and day out. Thomas Edison, also probably had some fairly decent work ethic. Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. Uh, so there it is as we uh, ease our toes into this topic.
Certainly uh, all of you have thought extensively about this and this, this won't be anything new. Um, saying some things that are maybe saying it differently. But there's something about work that's ingrained into the natural light of all men. You, again, just like these lines of passage, every culture, everywhere, they work. Uh, it's been recognized, for better or worse, that uh, the men are to carry the load of the labor for You sit on a chairlift. You ride an airplane. You meet someone, two guys meet for whatever the circumstances might be, and what's the first thing they ask each other? What's your name and what do you do? It's not even, you know, what's your job? Just the word, the general word do, every guy knows that's, that's work. It's inherent to a man. A man is made and is called work. And of course, that begins, number one, in the, the fact that God first worked. The idea of work comes from God. It, this isn't a, an accidental thing that was eventually learned in uh, agrarian society eons ago. God was the one who first worked. So we look here, we understand God eternally existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. He created the universe. He creates the universe to serve the stage, a theater for redemption for the purchasing and redeeming of a bride for his son uh, who will worship him for all eternity in the bliss of regeneration and glorification. But to do so, he created this stage. And this is where we see the idea of work. It's, this, is, this is architected by God. Uh, and he creates not only the week in which he works, he creates the work in which he makes. Uh, there's some extra notes. Just a couple brothers here if we need. Thank you. There we go. Um, so week, uh, day one, God, his work, uh, he makes light. And uh, God, in this work week, he's an entrepreneur. He's a visionary. Uh, he's an engineer, an architect. He's a carpenter. And a couple other under all those, hydrologists, hydrologist, uh, astronomer, and so on, astrophysicist. But he creates, what's that? Minor details, yeah. Uh, so he creates light on day one. Pretty interesting. Uh, a very complex phenomenon. Uh, behaves like a particle, kind of. Not really, though. Um, day two, he creates the sky and the expanse. Uh, day three, he comes up with the idea of, of land, of dirt. The earth is kind of formed together. Oceans and vegetation comes together. And uh, day four, he creates the galaxies, stars, moon, and sun. Day five, the flying and water-inhabiting creature. And then, of course, day six, <clears throat> all of the creatures on land makes, the last of which are the image bearers, human beings. And then day seven, uh, he, he rests, takes a break. He rested from his work, after looking at it and considering it was good. So the idea of work and the, the cycle, the rhythm of life of work, both of those things come from God. He did not have to make a universe in which people would have to work, being omnipotent, but he did. So as we consider work before and after the curse, number two, uh, that 
plays a major role in these two time periods, right? We understand that all of time and history in the Bible can be divided up threefold. If you were to ask, if someone were to ask you, give me a short version of how you would divide up the Bible. Before the curse, Genesis 1 to 2. During the curse, Genesis 3, right, to Revelation 20. And then after the curse, Revelation 21 to 22. And interestingly, work take pl takes place in the, those three stages of creation. Before the curse, right here, uh, we have Genesis 1, 26. God makes man and says, let us rule over the fish, the sea. Let them rule, excuse me. And then in verse 28, he again commands us, we've seen this, the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue and rule it. Where rule means to have dominion over. Sorry. Have dominion over, exercise control over, conquer. Uh, of course, this involves subjugating God's creation, um, lassoing it, using it, uh, not putting fences around it and saying it's evil to not do so. Subjugate the creation in a way that blesses image bearers and that causes the flourishing of the image bearers who are commanded to fill and multiply. So helpful. And we need to teach the youth this in the next generation because they're being taught not to work uh, in many ways, albeit directly and indirectly. Uh, this is a message, gentlemen, that we need to pass on to the next generation. If you have kids, pass this on. And they need to see that work was created before the fall. So from drilling of oil to harvesting food from the land, sky, and sea to mining minerals, building items, harvesting data, harvesting ideas, the management thereof, this, this is the cultural mandate to subjugate, to exercise dominion over the earth. This is a command we're going to have to work. This is involving work. So fulfilling the cultural mandate requires work. Then, so God gives that. This is going to be the pattern for all humanity. Do work to subjugate creation. Make stuff and make it awesome and, and bless your fellow man. This will glorify me. Use up the stuff. Don't worry. You're not going to use it up before you all die. You're not going to use it and not have anything to do and kill yourselves because as, as we understand, God is omniscient, omnipotent, and he has a plan where he's going to come back. And the scriptures that say when he does come back uh, that, that winter and summer, cold, snow, and heat will still be going on and there'll be lots of people and there'll still be an earth with resources, which means you're not going to use it up. You're not that great. It's prideful to think so. So use this, which involves work. And then 2.8, Genesis 2.8, we see this. So what's the first job? The Lord plants a garden east of Eden where he places the man in whom he has formed. And then verse 15, he took the man and he gives him his first job. Cultivate this garden and keep it. Nourish it. Uh, take good care of it. And so the notice that this is the man God places in the sphere of work and commands him to work. It's interesting, he gives the woman a different job. We've talked about that as a helper suitable. But the man, the first thing he does is sets him to work, gives him work, all before the fall happens. So there's great glory and God-honoring dignity in what we see right away. And if we're going to teach anything to the next generation, we have got to emphasize this for so many reasons not just to keep people out of trouble. Again, this is before the curse. 
We realize our purpose in this. So just a couple implications you can think of more. Number one, given the prominent place of work, prior, prior to the curse, the biblical and masculine idea of work is good and pleasing to God. Okay, basic stuff. Another implication, a perfect, sinless, blissful world is one in which there is work, the presence of work, not the absence of it. Work, therefore, number three, is dignifying to a man and God glorifying, obviously, in lesson of all sin. We'll talk about that. Scripture does not attribute masculine dignity to a specific type of work. Rather, it attributes masculine dignity to work, to work itself. Again, unless this job requires sin. And then fourth, another implication. So a man who refuses to work is catastrophically forsaking masculinity. You are not living as a man. You're forsaking your call to be a man, to be a male, if you forsake work. Okay, so that's before the curse. So we need to recognize that this isn't like a necessary evil. It's not work that is a curse. It's what happened to work after the curse that is cursed. Letter B, speaking of. So when describing the respective curses, you know, God addresses the, 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 the devil. He addresses the woman. We talked about that, that in the last couple of weeks. Work is an area, as he now comes to the man in verse 17 of Genesis 3, and he says, guess what? Unfortunately, because of your rebellion, work is going to experience the curse. Work is still going to exist, but the nature of it is going to be fallen. Genesis 3, 17, in your notes there, to Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground. Okay, so the ground is part of what we're to subjugate and exercise dominion over. And we're going to take metal, and we're going to take wood, and we're going to take food, and we're going to take ideas, and we're going to take statistics, and we're going to manage people and exercise law and justice from it in indirect or direct ways. So it's cursed now. Because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, but thorn, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you'll eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread, you'll work till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dirt or dust, the word can be translated, and to dirt you shall return. So work then, brothers, is not the product of the curse. It's the tediousness of work that is. Right? The curse didn't bring about work. The curse brings about, at times, the wearisome nature, the difficulty, the sorrow, the disappointment, the, the sleeplessness, the, the, the discouragement of work. In light of the curse, a man should not think that he is missing God's call also or failing in life if his work is often not the most enjoyable task. And that's freeing. That should be freeing to a man. If you don't like your work at times, that doesn't mean like you've missed God's call. There's a lot of idealistic erroneous utopian quotes out there that, oh, if you don't like your work, just keep finding something that fulfills you every single day. That, that's nonsense. Work is cursed now. You know, that's like saying if every day of your marriage isn't 
utter utopian bliss, well then it's go find a different wife. That's, that's just goofy. We live in a Genesis 3 world. Everything's been shellacked by the curse. Um, so in a curseless utopia, you know, this may be true, this idea that, well, I'll keep, but work is hard now as the curse predicts. Work won't be fun and enjoyable often. In fact, often the best jobs, all things considered, consider the, considering the Genesis 3 world in which we live and the toiling, often the best jobs, it's been said, are finding out stuff that most people don't like to do and do it and get good at it. You can usually provide and do work. You know, as I, as I look around at you guys and I, I know what you do, I couldn't even begin to do the things that you do. And I don't know what I want to. I, mean, I can't imagine doing some of the things you do. I just, I would, I would die. I'd be an utter failure. And so that, that's the way that just God uniquely hardwires us. And, um, you know, if you can find something that uh, maybe isn't the most enjoyable, but that you're wired for it, no one else wants to do it, you might be able to thrive a bit and promote this human flourishing and love your neighbor. Um, keeping all that in mind, again, this is just all foundational. Uh, letter C, a guy needs to rest from his work. This isn't just true after the curse, but before it. Before the curse on the seventh day, Genesis 1.31 to Genesis 2.3, God takes a break. He kicks his feet up on the seventh day, not because he was tired or because he's limited, but to set the course and the pattern for his worshipers, which, what, which is what image bearers are. Take a break. Take a rest. He rests on the seventh day. So it's clear from that. And it's also clear from the natural light that God gives us. That you need to push pause now and then. You know, a guy needs to have a couple days off, take a vacation, you know, even a coffee break in the middle of the day. Even a godly, diligent man will experience fatigue and inability to perform well in his work if he doesn't take a rest at times. Okay? All right. Very foundational stuff. Let's talk number three about the reproach of refusing to work. Number three, the reproach of refusing to work. And this is our generation um, is more and more, uh, especially under recent administrations, is being taught not to work. And maybe they're not being told don't work, but they certainly are being told it indirectly and loudly enough to where the message is coming across, is it not? Uh, but it is a reproach. Letter A, just by way of observation, Richard Phillips in his excellent book that I would commend to you guys if you haven't read it already, uh, The Masculine Mandate. He's got a great chapter on work. I pulled a lot of my stuff uh, from that chapter. He says this, quote, nobody respects a man who doesn't work. It's just as simple as that. It's okay for a man to be dumb or ugly or even a little unpleasant so long as he works hard. But nothing is worse than a guy who won't work, end quote. And I, I think that just tells it like it is. Um, letter B, uh, as we look into some scripture, the refusal to work is shameful and unwise. Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. And uh, from that, you know, stories like uh, of the cricket and the ant have been made and all kinds of other, you know, fun little parables that we've been told or tell our kids. Work, therefore, is a moral behavior. If it's shameful to not work, therefore work is a moral action. Very important to remember. It's not just a thing to do for a badge. It's a moral behavior. Letter C, 
furthermore, as we look at scripture, the refusal to work should be met with deprivation, not enabling. Not enabling. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. This is the apostle of grace. He says, for even when we were with you, speaking of the Thessalonian church, we love this church, we used to give you this order. So this isn't the first time they've heard this. This is like something Paul is saying regularly. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Uh, that's as clear as it could be, right? Uh, a few things by way of, of observation. The text does not refer to those who are unable to work. Okay? Due to the curse, we're not going to be immortal anymore this side of heaven. We will be afterwards. So we'll experience disability, injury, uh, death, crises, which, you know, different degenerative diseases. And all men one day will no longer be able to work unless they get taken prematurely. At some point, we, we just, we won't be able to work. Such situations can be handled with wisdom, obviously. There may, a, may be a possibility, say, if a guy experiences some illness or disability, he can learn a new trade, occupation perhaps, following a disability. But the inability to work does not mean that a man is failing to realize masculinity. Important distinction. I think we get that. Okay? Um, all men will not be able to work again one day. Neither does this mean that retirement is wrong. I know this is, this is a whole lesson in itself, but as we think of retirement, the Levitical priest, they retired from their priestly work. I think it was at age 50, was it? Plus or minus. Um, it just means that a man should have some legacy where he's worked righteously and faithfully in his life. We should, re we should also observe, too. I remember when I first moved to this town in the late 90s, and, and uh, just being in the ski bum culture, 20-something, uh, uh, I would meet these kids and they'd say, oh, he, I am or he is a trust fundy. And I didn't know what that meant. I never heard of such a thing. And why, what, what does that mean? He said, well, it means his family has enough money. He doesn't work. He just, they bought him a big house and car and he just hangs out and skis. You know, and me and my unregenerate 23-year-old says, that, that sounds like a great thing. But that's not God's will. Even if it can be afforded, a man should work, should have a, a legacy of work in his life. Got, a guy can retire, he can retire early, whatever, if God provides. But it's rebellion if a man forsakes work in entirety. Okay? So according to that verse, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, a man who refuses to work should suffer the consequences. This is what this text is saying. The 2 Thessalonians 3.10 does not say, for example... Well, if a man is not willing to work, still give him what he needs to survive. Give him a check every month just so he can get by. It does not say that. The implication is the opposite. It says, let the man starve until he experiences that impulse to where he has a change of heart and then he's willing to work. So starvation. So scripture teaches that starvation, which would you know, also speak to different levels of deprivation is a biblical motivation for a man to work uh, who otherwise refuses to do so. We can look in the Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 26, a worker's appetite works for him and his hunger urges him on. So, so Paul's not using hyperbole there. 
Uh, and he's even speaking to people within the church. How much more outside of it, right? Um, so the text presupposes that a man who refuses to work, once he experiences a measure of starvation's discomfort, he'll seek it out and God will provide for him. And some might say, well, that's unloving. And that's, you know, that's pretty harsh. No, no, it's actually not in any way whatsoever. It's actually a loving thing to do because we're not to forsake our call for masculinity. Again, insofar as we're physically able, but we're capable of, you know, God gave us some hands. God gave most guys like some feet and legs and, you know, a brain or some of a brain or eyes and a mouth and a voice. We're to do whatever we can to use that to work. And if a guy won't work, let him starve. That's what the text says. Um, and this has been the testimony of, of, of God's people. A few quotes here. John MacArthur says, quote, neither the world nor the church owes a living to those too lazy to work. A TL Constable in his uh, commentary on 2 Thessalonians says, quote, they uh, who refused to work were not to be supported by other Christians out of a sense of charity. The loving thing to do for those drones was to let them go hungry so that they would be forced to do right and go to work. No Christian who is able but unwilling to work should be maintained by others who labor on his behalf, end quote. D. Edmund Hebert has excellent, excellent commentary. He's got a great commentary in First Peter as well on First uh, and Second Thess. says, quote, misguided charity to such loafers only encourages their indolence and degrades them. If they refuse to work, let them go hungry. That will help overcome their indolence. Paul believed in the dignity of human labor and insisted that all those who profess faith in the gospel must engage in honest toil and not be drones. And then R.H. Lenski, I believe another Reformed commentator, says, quote, this dictum here abolishes all false asceticism. Great insight there. All unchristian disinclination to work, all fanatic exaltation above work, all self-inflicted pauperism. In other words, in ancient times, like, like monkery and this kind of stuff, well, I'm too godly to work. And uh, not that all monks did that, but no, that, that's, no, you're, you're near, that's not spiritual at all. That's forsaking God's call for men. Insofar as a man has some abilities, some skills, physically able, a man is to work and have a legacy thereof in his life. Okay? Now, look, I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm not a social worker. I in no way claim to have, you know, everything figured out as it concerns the welfare system and unemployment and homelessness. I would never claim to be able to figure that all out. However, we know what scripture says here, and it's quite clear. And, and God is, God's smart and, he, and he's wise and he loves human beings. You know, he's given us the stuff to use and sun and air and water. Scripture gives clear insight into this, into this situation in which we find ourselves uh, more and more in our day in our nation of men in society who refuse to work. Uh, enabling a refusal to work is enabling rebellion. The way that human nature works, you know, I'm no expert, but I've been a kid before and I saw that when I could get away with stuff, it wouldn't help me be a more upright kid. And with my kids, as I see them get away with stuff, or if I allow them to and don't, you know, bring discipline, it doesn't help them become a more responsible human being. Um, so enabling this refusal of the cultural mandate is enabling utter rebellion, and it's shameful. It's a shameful society. Well, let's create all these systems that enable this. We're not talking inability. We're talking refusal. 
And God's word is, I mean, sufficient for life and godliness and for these things. Some would argue this is a, that, you know, it's a form of theft uh, to take away from those who are able and willing to work and give it to those who are not willing to work. That it's a form of theft. And I think a, a pretty strong argument could be, could be made for that. Um, enabling uh, refusal to work enables rebellion and opens the door to all kinds of other, rebel, other acts of sin. Theft, drug use, uh, crime, um, other things. So we cannot support the idea from Scripture that a rebellion against this most fundamental uh, aspect and activity of, of men and masculinity, you cannot support that this should be enabled. Let them starve, the scripture says. And uh, that, by the way, speaks to government. That any command that talks about like a, a something, a consequence for human beings is directly applicable to government. Okay? Again, I'm not claiming to have any system figured out, nor could I. We're just looking at what the scripture says, and the scriptures are sufficient. Okay? Um, now, neither... Neither, as we think about the mission of the church, just in between the notes here for a moment, brothers, um, can we support from Scripture the idea that Christ has commanded the church to give to those in society who won't work? You hear people sometimes say, well, it's the church's job to take care of, you know, uh, it's not actually, that you, that you can't support that from Scripture, right? So don't put that mandate on the church. Individual Christians are free to, to, to do certain charitable things in society. They certainly are free to do that. But there's no mandate in Scripture that says so. Uh, instead, the church is responsible when it comes to the lost to evangelize the lost, to be salt and light to the lost, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 16 to conduct ourselves with wisdom towards the lost, Colossians 4, 5, and 6, to preach the gospel. Our chief responsibility to the lost is to give them Christ crucified, is to preach that, to speak that. Our chief responsibility to the world is a responsibility of speaking and then living in a godly way, no matter what they say. If, again, if a church or Christians decide to do some charitable, offer some charitable deeds to the lost, they're allowed to do that, but not at the forsaking of the gospel. And neither, as we look at scripture, passages like Galatians 6.10, for example, um, the church is responsible when it comes to material needs to take care of each other. This is John chapter uh, 13, verse 34 and 35, love one another as I've loved you, so that all men see that you're my disciples. The intercare of the body of Christ should make people think, I want to be a part of that. Why are, why are they like that? And in Galatians 6.10, do good to all people, especially those who are what? Of the household of the faith. And then 1 Timothy 5, taking care of widows. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, paying, paying full-time elders who preach the word. 1 Timothy 5.18 as well. And then people in hardship, things like that. That's the church's responsibility. So we're not to have things external to that be forced upon us. Okay? All right. Stealing and theft, just a side note here and pretty 
you know, common sense. Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal, uh, enabling this an, an individual who refuses to work. It can promote these things. You shall not steal, stealing, taking the property of another or others without permission. Obviously, God permits us, as we think about stealing, to acquire money and goods through work or through things like inheritances or people gifting it to you. However, God prohibits acquiring of goods through stealing. Obviously, stealing is not just bad thing. It goes back to rebellion against Genesis 1 and 2, that you're to work to acquire things. Even if you do work and steal, the means of acquiring is primarily through your work. And so stealing is a rebellion against this masculine mandate of working. Obviously, it involves covetousness and gratitude and justice. And so as, as we look at our society, we just have to look and see things that are happening. And, well, you know, let's, let's, they're, they're in some, some of these cities are creating uh, safe havens for, for, for drug use and illegal drug use and even handing out certain things to propagate this kind of uh, self-destructive behavior. And it is not loving to those individuals. That's not going to solve the problem. It's going to further encourage it. And I think 2 Thessalonians 3.10, you bring that and apply some implications of that to some of these current problems that we find in our cities that have been enabled by certain worldviews, it's going to actually reverse those, those problems, in, in, in my estimation, based on the authority of Scripture. So one who steals, uh, Ephesians 4.28, must steal no longer. Repentance looks like not only not stealing, but getting a job, verse 28, performing with his own hand what's, with his hands what's good, so that he'll have something to share with the one who needs. So repentance from stealing doesn't only look like stopping stealing, but starting giving through righteous work. To be a generous person, to be a person who gives to others. And by the way, that's you see a purpose of work there. In verse 28 of Ephesians 4, the purpose of work is to, to honor God, to glorify God, to exercise our, uh, our, our command of the cultural mandate to subdue the earth, but it's also to give. That's interesting. But that's part of the reason that God wants us to work, to be a generous individual like he is. Um, comments, thoughts, additional thoughts on the Number three, the reproach of a refusal to work. Uh, we have to teach our young men uh, from, uh, from early age. If you have, you know, if we have kids, young ladies too, that we want to set up something in the home where when they do, you know, little chores, uh, there's remuneration for it. When they do jobs and tasks, that we reward this responsibility. We reward these things. Um, and I would just encourage us as parents to consider that, uh, to show them the concept of labor and earning. Um, and by the way, I, I think we should also observe from Scripture that Scripture does not teach socialism or communism, notwithstanding how many misled people have tried to uh, aberrantly bring that from the Scripture. Uh, Proverbs, will look in a minute, Proverbs teaches like individual prospering from individual labor not this universal governmental ownership of the individual laboring, the, the, the individual's hard work and earning. 
scripture doesn't really say that. Oh, well, in Acts, you know, they gave to each other. Yeah, that, that's just a normal church. They're generous to each other. That doesn't mean that this big overbearing entity called the government owns all the property that is earned and worked for by the private individual. It's not propagating that from scripture at all. And the natural light within us, we can observe enough history to see the catastrophic consequences of these systems. Okay? Yeah. I think maybe a more common form of stealing. Yeah. Maybe with like brothers here, it would just be how you use your time. Yeah. Resources at your job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, flesh that out. Good. Yeah. Am I doing things at work on company time that would that aren't serving the company? Not only honor the Lord, but specifically yeah. serve the purpose of the company and why they're paying. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that could be a form of theft. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Thanks for pointing that out. And we'll get into a little bit of that, the Christian's responsibility at work uh, at the end of this, which probably we'll get you next week. We're doing very helpful. Thanks, Colby. Um, so number four, the blessings of work. Uh, work is a righteous endeavor to love your neighbor with a particular skill or service, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. That's one of the reasons God gives men work, to give this tangible task uh, to which a man will devote a, a huge chunk of his life, where in various ways he's loving his neighbor. Now, there are forms of quote-unquote work where people aren't loving their neighbor, and th that would be unrighteous work. But in righteous work, all the jobs that you men have, this is a form of loving your neighbor, of providing directly or indirectly a service, some goods, um, a skill, a, a training that does good to people, that provides a need or a blessing or something desirable to people. And so isn't it interesting that the God of the Bible from the beginning creates men you're not even going to realize it maybe at times, but I'm training you to do something that's in my word, that it fulfills the second great, great commandment, even though you might be an evil person. Okay? Um, work is a righteous way for a man to care for his family, if he has one, or for uh, other loved ones, First Timothy 5.8, where Paul says, uh, a man who won't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an unbeliever. Uh, Chris Mueller writes in his book that, you, that uh, we're reading, quote, the burden of caring financially for the family falls upon the man. A husband, again, insofar as he's physically able. A man must be a provider so that a mother of young children can keep house, 1 Timothy 5.14. A wife can be a worker at home, Titus 2.5. And a, a wife and a mother can watch over the ways of her household, Proverbs 31.27. Scripture is clear that the responsibility of this falls upon the gentleman. Uh, furthermore, uh, letter C, work is a righteous motivator for the attainment of wealth and goods. Um, the idea that the desire for things and wealth is evil is false. That cannot be uh, substantiated biblically. Rather, it's the idolatry of money or the worship of stuff that becomes evil. First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, sometimes this has been mistranslated, is the root of all evil. It's a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves in many griefs. So a warning there that is saying, guard your heart as God gives. And he does give. 
Uh, scripture describes work as a motivation for material blessing and provision. So I remember when I was a kid, um, I wanted stuff. And I said, Dad, you know, I loved football as a kid. I, I want football cards, and I love skiing, and I want ski gear. You know, I, there's this company, North Face. They came out with this jacket, and I want that jacket, Dad, and I want some, some skis. And Dad said, great, get a job. And you can do that. And so my dad, at 12 years old, helped me get a paper route in the neighborhood. And uh, what, a, what a great, difficult thing that was, is Brutus the Rottweiler would chase me every morning on my uh, on my GT Pro Series bike that I, that I was able to save up after months. And I finally learned that Brutus, I was so tired of running from him. I mean, this house looked like, you know, the last house on the left. It looked like a bad, probably shady stuff was going on there. And they had dog Brutus, the dog Brutus there, not coincidentally, and it worked. Until one day I just got tired of, you know, you little, little 70 pound Eric riding his bike away, you know, with a hundred papers in his thing. And I just sat there and Brutus sat there and just went, rrr, 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 and turned around. <laughs> <laughs> but work is a motivation for material blessing. Proverbs 10, four. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 12.11, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursue, pursues worthless things lacks sense. 12.24, and brothers, read these if you have kids. Read these to your kids. You want to be, you want to have stuff? You want to, you want to live the blessed life? Proverbs gives the blessed and the cursed life. It's doable for the most part, but it's going to take hard work, diligence, and sweat. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. 13.11, Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it, contrasting righteous and unrighteous work there. 1423, this is one that my kids and I were trying to memorize and apply, and all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And then 2 Timothy 2.6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So again, if God gives a guy you know, some legs, some arms, a brain, a voice, a skill, the ability to do stuff. Um, God wants that guy to use that ability to prosper and to gain material attainment and provision, to glorify God and to love his neighbor. And so the, the attainment of wealth and, and blessing is, is God's, that's God's gift. God gives that and he desires to give that as a reward for labor as, as to, and to show what an extravagant God that he is, a God of extravagant grace, I should say. So we, were, we rem, um, remember furthermore, bullet point there, it's God's grace that ultimately grants good things, Proverbs 10.22. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The idea that God gives uh, peace and, and, and satisfaction and a good conscience as we labor in a righteous job and God blesses it. There are many other verses uh, we could put there. Uh, Proverbs one twenty seven is a great one on work in the family that God, God gives, depending how you translate it there in Proverbs, excuse me, in Psalm 127, God gives to his beloved, even in their sleep. You know, it's vain for you to, to stay up late, uh, to wake up super early. The idea of not trusting God, trust God, work hard and trust God. Okay. Um, Letter D there, dignified and diligent work is a means through which God gives peace to the soul. And that's a blessing because everyone's looking for satisfaction of soul. 
Uh, everyone's looking for peace. Look at how people medicate themselves in different ways, over-the-counter or not over-the-counter, or over other things. Um, but work, notice, hard work is a way in which God, in, in the fallen soul, whether it's regenerate or unregenerate, God gives peace to that soul. Peace is something we're all searching for. Every human being wants this rest a, a, a constitutional rest, you know, within not the country, but within our, our own demeanor. 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. So when we fall into seasons or demeanors of laziness, there'll be a lack of peace. Ecclesiastes 5.19, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward. This, this implies work, obviously to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Okay? Um, let me just 30 seconds introduce our, our next topic there. So, number four, that's the blessing of work. It's not a necessary evil. God teaches us the idea of labor and earning through that. And, and obviously, there's some exceptions. There's been catastrophic as we mentioned earlier, uh, times and places in history where people have labored diligently and had great skill and they've been stolen from as the state assumes that, well, we own all that property. That's theft. That's theft by government, some of these systems, okay? But by God's grace in our day and our time and many other places around the world, you work, you earn, you get blessed, okay? What kind of work should I do? Number five, my work and calling. How should I think about, you know, maybe especially if I'm younger or raising kids or discipling a guy who's younger and thinking about a career, what type of work should I do? Scripture never, again, Scripture never says, identifies a particular type of work that has more or less dignity. It just says work has dignity. Nevertheless, there are some uh, principles of wisdom in the Scriptures that, that would direct us to think through Maybe what type of work I might lean towards. Okay? All right, we'll end there, gentlemen. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a, a faithful God. Uh, you're a righteous God, a God of justice. And we thank you for the gift of work. Even in the toil and the tediousness of it at times, uh, we thank you for the gift that it is that we are able, by your grace alone, by your enabling alone, Father, to exert ourselves, to love our neighbors in our jobs, to provide for others, for our families, whatever it might be. And we understand, Father, the, the ability to lift a finger one second at our job. Any talent we have, any training we have, any skill, any natural inclination we have, Father, in our jobs, it is all from you. And I thank you for these dear men who are just so skilled in so many things that they do. And would you bless these brothers Bless them in their work, to prosper in their work, to have diligence in their work, integrity in their work, and material blessing in their work, Father. We ask in the name of Jesus until we meet Sunday for worship. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Praying for you.